I wish we could start out this podcast with a little soap opera music. Remember how soap operas started with a little organ music <laughs> saying? And, and then what I would say is, can two people who are recovering addicts find love? Will this love last forever? Uh, what happens if one of the people in love relapses? What happens to the other person? Dun, da, 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 now the days of our lives. Mm -hmm. oh, that'd be nice. But we're not a soap opera. This is reality. Uh, this is Odyssey House Journals. I'm Randall Carlisle. My guest co-host is Destiny Garcia. And our two guests who are the object of our soap opera <laughs> are <laughs> Ashley and Tyson. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, I guess I sort of let the cat out of the bag about what, what you guys are going through. Uh, you're, maybe you can, I'm trying to think where we could start because you, you both have battled addiction for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe you can just tell me a little about that, then we'll get into the relationship, which, which I'm really curious about. Right. Do you want to start? Go ahead. Um, so I started using when I was 15. Um, I started smoking weed, drinking on the weekends. Um, I got prescribed um, pain pills when I was about 16, and then it just progressed to using heroin and just using every day. And um, I think we met about 15 years ago. Um, we met, I think, at a hotel doing a drug deal. Mm -hmm. And um, we ran around with the same people, the same crowd and we just kind of that's just kind of how we met so what and you were both using actively at the mm -hmm. time yes yeah. so what was and and now you now you both are in recovery for right how long i'll have seven years in january wow i'll have four years in march nice so describe the difference of I, I presume you thought you were in love or at least liked each other when you met, right? When you were high? More of just friends. We mm -hmm. were actually, yeah, we were, I believe she was with somebody. We were just friends. Um, I knew him pretty well, so I was just coming around more to meet up with him, um, but met her in the process. And, and, and when did you get back, I mean, when did you begin your romantic relationship? What was it? October 15th of 2020. Not that so, you remember. Yeah, so we just had an anniversary, so it was a, it's been a topic of discussion. Yeah, we started playing softball together, and I, I don't know, I just remember like having conversations with him when we were driving, like, because both of us were single at the time, and we're like, we're not looking for anything, we don't want a relationship, you know, and then it just kind of, it just kind of happened. So you guys weren't together in your addiction, but you guys knew each other in your addiction. Yeah, just yep. friends. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, the question was: I remember. Uh, I should point out that Destiny's in long-term recovery. So am I. And I remember one of the words of advice going through programs was: Don't date mm -hmm. anyone. Mm -hmm. Don't fall in love with somebody else who is dealing with the same crap you are. Right. So, uh, is, has that been an issue with you guys? Um, I mean, I would say a little bit, like when we first started dating, I think, what, you had six months? I think about seven months, seven months, and I was in, I had just finished treatment um, and was in a sober living, 
And so that's kind of when we started meeting and talking. And it's, it's true. I do remember even talking to my sponsor about relationships mm-hmm. a week before we got together. And he was like, hey, I told him the situation. I was like, you know, I'm working on myself. I'm not too worried about finding, uh, you know, having a woman in my life right now because I have so much baggage that I need to get rid of in a program to work before I'm, you know, fit for anybody. And so lo and behold, a week later, I put my foot in my mouth. And, <laughs> and here we are, you know. Have either of you relapsed during your relationship? No. No. Have you talked about have you talked about what if? I mean like if one of you for whatever reason and I hope it never happens would right. relapse would the other one then relapse and use that as in well she's doing it or he's doing it so I might yeah. as well do it too. Yeah. I think both of us are strong enough in our recovery. I think if one of us fell down we you know would know what to do and how to support one another I guess or I guess leave the relationship because I know for me like if he relapsed that's not something I'm worth like throwing my life away for. Right. And I would would feel the same be very supportive helpful Um, you know and if if I or her weren't willing to take the steps to get back on our feet and figure it out then that's just something you got to move on from as hard as that is and as, Mm -hmm. as easy as that sounds it's not it's absolutely not and it would be so emotionally hard it would be terrible it's one of those things that you have to go through but i know going through it clean i'll be okay you know like using again is just not an option for me you know i have i i tried to build my life to have assets not liabilities you know i used to have liabilities because it didn't matter if i go back to prison for the sixth seventh eighth time that was irrelevant it didn't matter because i didn't have anything so today you know, the assets far outweigh the liabilities. And so it's every day, I'm not just working to be better, which is my goal, but it is to, to give a life to her, to our little girl, our families, um, you know, cause I've missed a ton of time in prison and incarcerated. And so to me, it is very important. And I used to stress making that time up, but that's just not reality. So now I just have to live today, work on myself and try and be better, you know, but it is scary thinking about that um a relapse a situation that goes bad um and and as easy as fluid as i say that yeah i would support and i would love that is a possibility that's a super super bad situation to be in but i do know like the community i have the people i have that both of us share um it's pretty much you got to get up and move on or or you got to walk away from it you know did you yeah. ever have that issue, Dustin? Oh, yeah. So my, I was with my daughter's dad in my addiction, and then I got sober, and then he got out of prison, and I let him parole to my house, and three months later, he's shooting up, and I'm, I have to kick him out, you know? Boundaries are hard. It was the hardest boundary I've ever had to hold in mm-hmm. my life, um, and I still hold that boundary today because he's still uh, not sober, and it's hard, it's, right. especially when you share a child with somebody, and you see their potential, right? Like... Holding boundaries in recovery with loved ones is extremely hard, hard. and it hurts like hell. It hurts. But in hindsight, fast forward to five years, it's the best boundary I've ever held. I would not be where I'm at today if I was worried about him and his junk and what was going on. Would you have slipped up then, do you think, if you'd have put up with it? Yeah, I think if I would have allowed it in my home and I would have kept him around, of course, at some point, I probably would have entertained that, and that's why I kicked him out the day I found out. Like, within an hour, I found out I, he was out. 
um, because I knew I, had, I was working at the mayor's office. I had a really good foundation, and, and I had came from nothing, no shoes on my feet. So I, of course, I held that boundary, even though it was really, really hard. And I still have to hold boundaries today with some family members. Like, it's hard. Mm-hmm. When you love an addict, it's really hard. Right. I'm glad you didn't come in in bare feet today. You oh, me have too. shoes on your feet. <laughs> me yeah. too. I could pick what shoes I wanted today. <laughs> there you go. How old is your daughter? She's 11. So was she was she she was around then while you were using. Mm-hmm. Did did you maintain custody of her? Or? I did. My parents had her while I was in treatment for three months, but I had her before. I had her after. Does she was she aware of the issues you were dealing with? Um. I'm not sure. Like, I think at the time, yes, because when I got out of treatment, like, we'd drive past, like, the liquor store, and she's like, oh, Mom, there's your favorite store. I'm like, oh. <laughs> you know, and, but she yeah. didn't know what it was. Right. She had no idea, mm-hmm. but she just knew that that was a place that we went a lot. Yeah. So, but over time, she forgot about that. We can drive past that today, and she has no idea I was there before. Do you guys talk to her about, she must be, because you take her to a lot of your events and everything, mm-hmm. and obviously it's about sobriety right. uh, and recovery. Do, mm-hmm. Does she ask questions? How do you how do you deal with her? I yeah, mean, I mean, we're pretty open with her. Um, like, her dad was killed by a drunk driver, so at an early age, we had open communication, like, this is how your dad passed away, this is why, if people drink you don't make shitty you know choices like this um and she's aware like she'll go somewhere and like maybe her friend's parents are drinking and she'll call me and be like hey you know they're drinking can you come get me you know and I try not to put her in situations but you know people drink and but she's very smart and she's she's learning a lot I think it's smart to be open with your children about this thing Mm -hmm life you know right. like everybody lives a different lifestyle mm-hmm. and just because we're clean and sober and don't have alcohol right. in our home doesn't mean other people don't and doesn't right. mean other people can't casually drink and yeah okay. it doesn't mean it's wrong yeah yeah so I think being open with your children I'm really open with mine mm-hmm. um and it's I think it's the best way to go right I think, it's, huge. I think it's very beneficial you know had I had that type of understanding at a young age I might have been like oh this is where I don't want to start, you know? Because I started about 14 years old drinking marijuana, high school, amphetamines, and it was off to the races, you know? I didn't really know. I knew it was wrong, obviously, the things that I was getting into, but I didn't have that, hey, your friends are gonna drink. What are we gonna do if that happens? What's your plan? You know, I didn't have a game plan. I was just, I wanted to hang out with my friends, the cool kids, those who accepted me, you know, always looking for acceptance and, and so I think it's good that we do talk to mm-hmm. our little girl about that. And I think it's important that she understands these are the consequences that go along with, with that lifestyle, you know. I wonder what's going to happen in the future when all these kids grow up who have been, that, that we've been honest mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. Because that's really sort of the norm. I, well, maybe it's not in some mm-hmm. families, but it should be. It <laughs> yeah. should be the norm. Uh, and I wonder how, if they're going to grow up any differently than we did. Well, my parents were pretty open with me about their struggles and my dad's addiction. And I think for me at a young age, like, I always thought that's not going to happen to me. Like, I'm not going to be a drug addict. I'm not going to be an alcoholic just because my dad was or other family members. Like, I always looked at it like I was untouchable. 
visible. Were your parents in recovery when you were young? My dad was. He got sober when I was about 15. See, my mom, alcoholism runs on the paternal side of my family back as far as I can trace. Mm. And my mom is still alive at 96, and she knows that I was a functional alcoholic for decades, and she's obviously happy that I'm sober now. Mm. But, but she said, and she, she posed an interesting question to me. She said, if I would have told, because I started drinking when I was like mm -hmm. 13, 14, something like that. If I would have told you back then that every male in your family has been an alcoholic, uh, so if you start drinking now, your odds are increasing that you will become an alcoholic, would you have not, would you have stopped drinking? Mm -hmm. And, and no. no, I wouldn't have. Because I pictured an alcoholic as some bum sitting on a street corner with a with a, a, a bag, mm -hmm. a, a little bag, and unscrewing the top of the MD 2020 or whatever it is, taking a sip and shaking and stuff right. like that. And I said, I'm never going to be like that, mm -hmm. you know. And I never was, but I I am an alcoholic. Right. You know? right. And well, I think most addicts are functional. You know, it's it's the very few you see under the bridge, like myself that can't function while they're doing it, but mm -hmm. most people are functionally, they, they function just fine in their own homes. As long as you have the money to buy the substance right. you want. Right. Yep, mm -hmm. which, which is yeah. where an awful lot of people get in trouble. Did you, did you get Absolutely, you, that was my, that's where I couldn't function. I didn't work, um, it was a cr criminal lifestyle. You know, I th and I think it was easier turning to those individuals because they weren't judging me. You know, I could commit crimes, whatever that looked like, burglary, robbery, mm -hmm. um, whatever that looked like, they knew that something was coming out of it from them, right? Some money, stolen property, drugs, whatever was coming their way. So, of course, they're not going to judge me or, or have a problem with that. But obviously, I, I couldn't function enough to work. I mean, from the amphetamine sleep deprivation at a young age, you know, you're going crazy. And so... Yeah, I just didn't even see that as a, as a possibility. I could not function using it all. How, how did you handle active addiction? Were you working, not working, playing no. mom, well, you know? Gosh, I wasn't working. I kind of isolated myself. Like, I wanted to be at home using by myself. And, you know, my daughter would be watching a movie in the other room, and I would be in my bedroom for, like, hours. And we have had we have had your mom on a podcast, mm -hmm. uh, and and she's been very supportive. But she's very happy right now that you, that you're doing what you're doing. Right. Which, how did she deal with you through your addiction? Oh my gosh, that's really hard to think about because we were terrible to my mom. Um, she always supported us. Like she would come to the houses we were staying at to try and get us to go to rehab. She'd call the cops on us. She would, if we needed anything, she was the one person we could call and she would be there. She was very supportive, but I could tell that it broke her emotionally. She was, I told her she was very enabling right. because when you needed stuff, you got that. it. Yeah. Right. You know. yeah. 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 For sure. I mean, and she knows she's an enabler. She's working on it. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, that's an addiction in itself. 
Right. Well, yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, you know, I facilitate a it's family hard. support group, and, and, and an awful lot of those people are addicted to their loved one's addiction mm-hmm. and, and can't fathom the idea of saying, no, you can't live here anymore. No, I'm not going to let you steal from me, or, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to bail you out of jail. Yeah, it's a little harder when it's your family. Like when my sister went through her addiction, I it was really hard for me to cut her off because I wanted to save her. You know, I wanted to be the one that helped her get into recovery and change her life around. But it became very toxic. Mm -hmm. How did your parents handle? Oh man, your addiction. (laughs) So my parents were alcoholics both of them they worked and who says there's yeah. not a genetic yeah. factor in all <laughs> they, this they worked themselves to death um so i had a ton of free time as, as a juvenile growing up a lot of free time i don't think my you know i left for school and i probably didn't see my parents till five or six at night at the earliest um so my use came started really heavy after i lost my grandfather who was more like the closest thing i've had to a dad and I lost him, and things just got a little darker, right? Like, I didn't believe in so much of a higher power of God. I was very mad, very upset. Um, so it was kind of that rebellion stage, you know. And my parents, um, I never really gave them an opportunity to do anything about it because I was a runner. I'll, I'll leave. I'll run. I'll go stay at my friend's house. I'll go stay at the trap house. Um, I changed my numbers my phone numbers when when I was a little bit older more times than anybody from paranoia let alone you know <laughs> I met yeah some of those stories but um, yeah. <laughs> you know I never gave them the opportunity to really do much about it you know I didn't really listen to anything they said and I think a lot of that was like a defense mechanism sure. if I didn't know they were hurting then I could continue doing what I was doing as long as I didn't feel like they cared or whatever I could make up in my head you know, and I could just cut off communication. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have to deal with that aspect. But yeah, they, um, you know, getting older, the prison sentences, you know, the letters, the money on the books, um, you know, they would do that. I mean, I did a pretty long stint in federal prison and communication was not there at all with my dad. Um, my mom would, you know, send money here and there. The calls, it was pretty much just like, hey, mom, this is what I need. All right, see you later, you know. Phone calls were really hard for me in prison, being in another state, in a federal penitentiary, with everything that's going on, living a whole different lifestyle. And you get on that phone for 15 minutes. When that phone call's over, I go back to prison, you know. My mind goes back to prison and and what I'm doing. and, And so it was really hard for me. I think that was another defense mechanism I used is, and to this day, I'm so hard getting on the telephone. I just do not like FaceTiming or calls, but um, man, I think that's where that trauma came from, you know? You, you know, you bring up a point that it's easier to hang around people who are doing the same thing as you are doing. Yeah. Uh, and and because nobody's going to judge you. I mean, okay, I'm a heroin addict, you're a heroin addict, right. I'm going to say, what? Where right. to go? You scored some money and then you scored some heroin. Uh, the flip side of that is true, and you guys really epitomize that. Uh, and I, I think we all do. Destiny it works at Clean Slate, Utah. I work right. at Odyssey House, and you guys have Hank, you are so active in the recovery community mm-hmm. now, which I think is just so critical for anyone getting through treatment and who's in recovery. Yes. You know, 
softball, stuff like that. But you've also set up a nonprofit of your own. Tell, tell me about that. Um, so we set up the Ashley Michelle Project. Um, we are helping women in recovery. We have three. Michelle, let me interrupt. Michelle is her sister who yeah. is also in recovery. So that's okay. what they call yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so we have three storage units full of clothing, hygiene, shoes, furniture. Um, we basically help people who just got out of treatment. Um, you know, because you get out of treatment, sometimes you don't have anything. You have the clothes that you went yeah. in there with. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times they don't fit. or Because you, you gained some weight. <laughs> yeah. So... We do that. Um, we've been doing a bunch of fundraisers to raise money because um, we want to open up transitional living to help those that, you know, can't afford to get into housing. Oh, I've seen you guys all over Facebook. Mm-hmm. I'm just barely making the connection right now. I don't yeah. think we're friends on Facebook, but I've seen the fundraisers from yeah. everybody else. Mm-hmm. We're going to be friends after yeah. this. Just yeah. So okay. Shame on you for not. I know. Friends. I know. <laughs> and if you have a criminal record, I'll help. Yeah. <laughs> How important do you think it is to? Because. I talk to people all the time who are going through treatment and, and getting ready to get out, and I say, you know, it's, it's really critical that you don't go back to your mm-hmm. old friends and your old right. haunts, mm-hmm. and that you that you do participate in some sober activities. How, yeah. how important do you guys think that is? I think that's life-changing for me personally. I have to be surrounded with a community of individuals that want to better themselves. Um, because I have the habit of going to individuals. What I want to do is where I'm going to go, if sure. I, you know what I mean? And so this uh, June 20th of 2020, or June 30th of 2020, I paroled. was the last time I paroled. And I knew when I left that day, um, I didn't have the same phone. I didn't have the same Facebook. I didn't have any of the same contacts, and I kept it that way. Not to say that I haven't ran into people that I knew you know, while using and they're still in a bad place, but it's more of like, hey, man, I love you. If you want help, I'll let you know how to get there. I'll meet you at some meetings. Um, but I know I can't put myself at risk. But that community alone has saved my life. The recovery softball, um, the individuals you meet there, you know, like I'm trying to be surrounded with people with 25 years of recovery that own businesses that can tell me how to do things that I want in life, you know. And um man that's that's huge for me you know that's one of those that that touches my heart because i know um if everybody got 10 years of sobriety and left it alone and did their own thing i wouldn't have had those individuals to pull me through that you know so that's a big thing for me is staying connected and also being willing to give time and attention and and help other individuals in my shoes you know that's that's how i have to give back how does that help you well my biggest downfall has been my friends like every time i get out of treatment I go back to the people I was comfortable with or you know that I knew were using and so when I got out of treatment this last time I had to change everything even you know all my friends cut off some family members like it it's tough but you know my recovery is the connections with others Mm -hmm. that's my biggest people don't seem to understand that if you make your recovery number one Mm -hmm. Uh, you have to because without recovery you can't do any of the other stuff you want to do in life right yeah I heard the saying you have to build your life around recovery and not recovery around your life right right and and you got to admit it's like working for clean slate or me working for Odyssey it's it's a lot easier to to stay in recovery in an atmosphere like this yeah right Mm -hmm. And, and uh, 
and, and you guys working to, one of the things, whether you subscribe to AA or 12-step meetings or anything, almost every single recovery program says one of the things that's going to help keep you in recovery is giving back, which you right. were just describing. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, is that why you're doing the Ashley Michelle thing? Yeah, I definitely want to give back to the community. Um, I feel like when I went into treatment, there wasn't a lot of resources like that. Like I didn't have a lot of help. And I think that's important to people who are trying to get sober because it's, it's tough. But if you have people in your corner, you know, rooting for you mm -hmm. and pushing you, right. like they're going to be a little bit more successful. So if somebody needed some of your services, how would they find you? We have a website. It's the AshleyMichelleProject.com. Um, it has our phone numbers, our email. Um, they can reach out on there. Social media is huge. Facebook, we get a ton of messages through Messenger. Um, and just I, just word of mouth, too. Yeah. Mm. For sure. And that's why, you know, that's Clean Slate Utah. Is, I mean, she's talking about people getting out. You know, but but we we talked on recent podcasts about the fact that if you have a criminal record, yeah. mm -hmm. you got all these issues to deal with housing, jobs, blah blah blah. So you must feel good about what you do at Clean oh, I Slate. Love what I do. I love that I'm record free now, and That's I wasn't awesome. before, That's even though up. I scream from the rooftops. I have right. a record, um, but I love like yesterday in the mail we got 57 letters of final expungements for people wow. that we've helped get through the process themselves. So those people have done the work themselves. They've mm -hmm. done the court paperwork themselves, and we've gotten their final their final orders. And right. that's going to change people's lives. It's right. going to change their future. It's going to change their children's lives. Absolutely, I love what I do. I do too. Uh, you know, and and I feel you know, rehab programs work for some people and don't work for other mm -hmm. people. Right. And programs are different, and you should find one that works for you. But but when when I see people succeed in our program, it's like wow. That, you know that's great you've, mm -hmm. you've you've changed a life right and you guys are positively changing lives with uh, what you're doing so believe it or not our half hour is up and I appreciate you guys uh, coming in and sharing how would we close the soap opera I mean, a little <laughs> organ music saying they're still in love and they have yeah. a bright future mm -hmm. Ashley and Tyson yeah. <laughs> tune in again tomorrow on days of our lives <laughs> right? so yeah. we thank you guys for being here thank you and thank you thank you for watching another edition of Odyssey House Journals